Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. To each and every one of you, for all the ways that you choose to welcome each other in this space, we do this each and every weekend, and it's true that we love coffee here at Commons, but our coffee break is more than just a caffeine delivery system. There are so many weeks where I think sometimes that our coffee pause might be the most spiritual thing that we do, because in it, we offer the sacrament of community to each other. With smiles and laughter and brief introductions, some of you have met each other for the first time, and that's a beautiful thing. Because ultimately, the church is one of the places in our lives where we should be reminded that we aren't alone, even for just a moment. And it's a beautiful thing that we do this with those that we know well, with those that we maybe haven't seen for a while, and then maybe you just met someone for the first time and you've extended this great grace to them. And so thank you for the ways that you do this week in and week out, and we're so grateful for that. And with that said, we are now coming back to our second last week in this long fall series we've been running on the life and story of this guy named Joseph. And we've been working through it for about two months now, and I hope that it has been as stimulating, as meaningful for you as it has been for us as a teaching team. Because as familiar as Joseph might be for some of us who have been around church before, there is so much richness and nuance here when we take the time to take our time through it. And unpacking the layers of meaning that the ancient authors have used has a way of helping the characters come alive for us in new ways and showing us that there are new ways of redemption that are open to us and present to us in our experience now in the modern world. And this week we are gonna come back to a story that we looked at last time around where Joseph is called in to interpret the ancient Pharaoh's dreams. And there the ancient king illustrates for us what happens and what things look like for us when we are afraid of the future. Because whether we like it or not, life has a way of shifting from good times to bad times, from beauty to loss and everything in between. And it happens to all of us. And then, like Pharaoh, we often find that our trusted resources for comfort and for guidance and insight, often when we get in these times of pressure, these things fail us. Opening up for us, or opening us up to new sources of wisdom that often come to us from unexpected places, which is what Joseph represents in the story. And he fills this role as his own character arc starts to change. And as I mentioned last time, I love some of the language here of how everything is shifting for Joseph and it's happening quickly. And how this is a gentle reminder for us that some of the startling changes that come to us, they're not always disastrous. No, sometimes these kinds of moments come to us in the unexpected meetings we have with a new relationship or new arrivals that come to us or unearned blessings. And in these kinds of moments, we're swept up in this notion and this idea and this sense that life is a gift, which is important for us to remember from time to time in the midst of everything that happens to us. Because life has a way of feeling like an exam sometimes, or it feels like an exercise in persistence and endurance, where nothing seems to come easy, which is why we need to appreciate times when goodness comes quickly to us. And the truth is that life's changing currents can leave us wondering just how it is that the divine is involved in our experience. And on the surface, 
this story seems to be hinting for Joseph and for us that God sets things up. And in the story of Joseph, we see that the king's dreams are a message that God is going to act in human history. In fact, Joseph says that God has determined what's going to happen next. And we talked about how in this story, Joseph goes on to give the Pharaoh some recommendations. And he strongly suggests that if he doesn't follow those suggestions, there are going to be some alternative outcomes. Which reminds us that this story isn't meant to give us a picture of how God conspires and controls to accomplish a certain future. But instead, we're invited to see how Joseph faces the unknowns of his life with a resolute trust that God will meet him in any and all possible outcomes. And given all that Joseph's been through so far in the story, it's not too hard to imagine him thinking this way. Because time and time again, God has been present to Joseph, even in his worst moments. And this fact, this is the heart of the story in so many ways. And it's the root of the right kind of certainty for you and for me. Where even in all of our questions and all of our faltering attempts to grow and be better, we can begin to trust that God will meet us up ahead along the way that we make in the world, which is the kind of certainty that fuels our choices to love and to care and to create and ultimately to hold those around us. Today, we gotta finish looking at this story that we started, this scene that's so complex, and we need to get things set up for our last week coming up next week. But before we get into that, let's pray together now, focus our hearts and minds. Join me now. God of all, In you, we find our rest today and our hope and our light for this way that we walk. And perhaps we have brought fatigue with us today, maybe some apathy. And then, of course, there are so many parts of our lives that feel dark today. And these things we offer because our hearts and our desires are known. And in the safety of this moment, we confess our need for change and for transformation, which is why we humbly ask for it now, not just for us, but for your whole wide world. Would you give us grace to be open to your work? And would you give us courage to join with you in your work? And would you give us peace so that we can trust that you are working? In the middle of all we see and know today, Lord, have mercy. And guide us now, we ask, in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. And as we do, I want to take us back to a moment from last Sunday when we see that Joseph has just heard Pharaoh's dreams and he's interpreted them. And then, like we noted, he kind of takes a little liberty and he starts giving this ancient king advice. And I wonder if you've ever known anybody like this, maybe a relative or a friend, perhaps a total stranger. You're just having a conversation. Maybe you're talking about this new case you got for your phone, something innocent like that. And then all of a sudden they're out of their lane and they're just telling you how to vote, like on an Olympic plebiscite or something like this, right? And just to be clear, that's not what's happening in this story. But like I mentioned last week, I can't help but be struck by how Joseph doesn't seem to be aware 
of who he's talking to here. I mean, these pharaohs are the guys who, when they died, they build tombs the size of downtown office buildings to bury themselves in. And Joseph just starts throwing in a few caveats in his interpretation that seven good years are going to come, and then after that, seven bad years are going to come. And he tells the king to find a discerning and a wise man and put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then to have that guy collect the extra food for the next few years and gather it in storage cities so that when the famine comes, he's prepared. And then we read this. We read that the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. And so Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and as wise as you. You can be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to be subject to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So there's a couple things we're going to look at there, but I want to take one final look at Joseph's boldness here. Because obviously the story goes that he has killed this impromptu job interview. And the text attributes this confidence to Joseph's perceiving or believing that God was involved in the situation. But if we're honest, that doesn't really explain how self-assured he appears here, or more to the point, how we're supposed to act like Joseph, if at all. Especially at our times, when like Joseph's character, there are solid reasons to be thinking about the future and beginning to feel a little anxious about what's ahead of us. Which reminds me about this other story in the Hebrew Bible from 1 Samuel chapter 14. And in that story, the Hebrew people are finding themselves in a place of oppression. And people are jumping off of a bandwagon like crazy. And this guy named Jonathan, he saw the huge odds that God's people were facing. And in this moment, he says to his servant, he says, Come, let's go over to the enemy outpost on the other side of the valley. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. And the story goes that these two guys spark this amazing victory for God's people, which shouldn't be taken as a tale about how to pick fights with larger opponents or how to be rash and irresponsible in our decision-making. No, in, instead, just like Joseph's actions with Pharaoh, this story, like Jonathan, it's meant to wake us up to the open spaces that are around all of us. See, I can still remember when this story about Jonathan started to shape and change my conception of how to live my own life. Because I'd grown up in a Christian community where I somehow picked up this fear that God had a plan for my life and the whole expansive universe and I better not do anything to screw that big, powerful, illuminating plan up. Which is a little skewed, right? Anyway, that fear dominoed in my life. It dominated my early adult choices about where to live and how to study and what to do because I didn't want to end up in a less than perfect version of my own story. And in that season, I discovered someone's discussion of this story of Jonathan, how he chose to act and move and say something like, perhaps the Lord will act for us, hoping and trusting that God would be with him in the doing. And I started to imagine what would happen when instead of living with subtle fears that God's goodness, God's great goodness could somehow be limited if I didn't discover my obscure plan for my life. And instead of that, I chose to act. 
And I chose to participate and I chose to lean into living, trusting that the divine forms the future with me even when things don't go well. And when I did that, this started to shape me and all kinds of open space came to me, which is what this moment is for Joseph, I think, where he just leans into this conversation with the king and he goes for it which might be a spark for some of us today. Maybe because you carry some fear about missing some divine opportunity or that your choices might somehow spoil the perfect trajectory that you've laid out for yourself. Or maybe you wrestle with things to the degree that you choose to not move forward with a project or a goal or a relationship. And this is not to say that being whimsical and carefree is the answer to everything. I've lived just long enough to figure out that care and wisdom go a long way too. Just like they seem to in Joseph's life here as he advises this powerful man. No, the point of the story isn't to be careless. And instead, perhaps an encouragement to stop letting fear keep us stationary. To look and to watch for these kinds of open spaces. Chances to speak our mind and to help others, and to do something that lines up with our deepest desires. And we find there that there's always this divine invitation waiting for us in the potential for newness, in our work, in our family rhythms, and in our spiritual and emotional lives. Now, this idea, it connects to something that I read to you a second ago. Because Pharaoh responds to Joseph's initiative by asking those in the room. He says, can we find anyone like this man? One, is, one in whom is the spirit of God. And then Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and as wise as you. You can be in charge of my palace and my people are subject to your orders. And scholars note that this acknowledgement that Joseph has or is filled with the spirit of God This is the first time that we see these words and this language used in the Hebrew Bible. And we see similar language in this guy in Exodus who was a craftsman. His name was Bezalel. And he is filled with skill and ability and knowledge, the text says. And then we see similar language in the story of Daniel. And we see how Daniel is talking to an ancient king and that king looks at Daniel and says that, Daniel, you carry this divine mark. You have illumination and knowledge and extraordinary wisdom. And commentator Nahum Sarna notes how in the Hebrew Bible, when people have this set of them, they have a tendency to take on significant challenges as a character, and they have considerable energy, and they exhibit practical wisdom in the world. And these things certainly describe Joseph in this story, as we see him crisscrossing Egypt, organizing the imperial program to save and store the harvest as things are going well. And truth be told, it's not too hard for us to look at these biblical stories and read these characters as exceptional, as the exception. But that isn't always helpful, is it? The story is meant to inspire us and capture our attention for what it looks like when a person lives out of the strength and creativity that the divine works inside them. But that's not particularly helpful if the only people who get to claim this kind of divine inspiration are the model characters in the scriptures or the gifted and famous people in our own lives. If we take the position that Joseph's just stepping into an open space in the story, 
He's showing initiative for sure, and he's tapping all the lessons that he's picked up on and learned in his difficulties. Obviously, he's doing that. But ultimately, assuming that we, ha- we all have these kinds of moments. Sure, some of our lives may not end up mythologized and canonized like Joseph's, but we all inhabit space and time in ways that allow us to take our aptitude and our experience and then assert ourselves. And when we think like this, then this story starts to look less like the account of an exceptional character that we could never mimic. And instead, we can ask ourselves if it's possible that we too carry the Spirit of God in the ways that we use our skill and our ability. And I wonder, do you imagine yourself this way? In your professional life and in your career, where your accumulated skills and experience position you uniquely? For some of you, it's your parenting. Think of the skill it takes to discern your kids' personalities and to attend to them, to meet their basic needs while tending their little hearts. That is the spirit, people. Especially when you're sleep-deprived and in need of adult conversation. This is powerful stuff. Or maybe for some of us, it's how you relate to others in various spheres of your life. Maybe your server, your barista, your neighbor, your coworker. When you notice someone else's difficulty, when you pick up on their anxiety in a situation, when you remember their name and their story, choosing to care for them in simple ways, these skills, these abilities, these instances of practical wisdom, these are ways that we all carry the generous spirit of the divine in us. And we learn to see our lives this way, and when we do, We take this story like Joseph and it makes it accessible to us where we start to see the ways that we participate in redemption and creative impulse and culture and real lasting change where we join with God in using our skill and our accumulated experience to shape the future around us with everyday ordinary wisdom. So, Pharaoh recognizes Joseph's skills here and how he's fit for this unique challenge they face together. And he tells Joseph this. He says, you will be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne am I greater than you. And he takes his signet ring and he puts it on Joseph's finger and he dresses him nicely and he puts a gold chain on his neck and he puts him in a chariot as his second in command and people are shouting everywhere Joseph goes, because Pharaoh puts him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And there's a couple things to know in this piece of the story. First, this is yet another instance where Joseph finds himself given tremendous influence and how, like in Potiphar's house, for instance, there are tremendous limits placed on him there. There's something to be said about how, regardless of whether we live with power and authority, we all have to operate within boundaries. And how these limits are actually often part of what sustains us. But we're going to have to come back to that another time because I want to focus on the idea of power for a second and what's happening to Joseph here. Because scholars have actually compared this story to other ancient literary texts that we have, manuscripts that we found, and they find there that Joseph is likely being named a vizier, this office in Egypt, that he may have carried a title something like overseer of the domain of the palace which was an actual title in the ancient world and only slightly pretentious. 
But there's this curious Hebrew phrase translated here where Pharaoh says that all my people are subject to your orders. Because literally the Hebrew says this, that on your mouth shall all my people kiss. And listen, I'm not afraid to offer a handshake and the occasional hug as a leader, but this kind of dynamic is super awkward to imagine, am I right? The point is that what's implied in the passage and the phrase is that what's coming from Joseph's mouth or his commands, what comes there from there is power to conduct others. That's this indication that whatever Joseph says, it goes. And this is a sign of real power. And what's worth noting here is that there's this useful distinction to be made between apparent power, which is the offices and the titles that we get, and the actual power, which is formed in relational equity, which we see in the following verses where Joseph goes out and travels the country doing everything he can to prepare the nation for the lean years. And this kind of apparent power is represented when we see Pharaoh giving him this ring and clothing him with fine clothing, giving him a gold chain. These are all things that are corroborated in the ancient manuscripts as being signs of authority in ancient Egypt, where Joseph is now clothed like royalty, and he carries the signing authority and the approval of the king. And these descriptions are meant to make it clear that Joseph has climbed the heights of his culture and to startly contrast the low places that we've seen him already in the, the pits that he's found himself in. And ultimately, this description is meant to point toward the fulfillment of Joseph's childhood dreams that we started with at the beginning of the story. And these descriptions should raise questions of how we encounter power, how we're supposed to use it and work towards its actual and equitable forms. Because guess what? Some of us actually have authority. Maybe you have little people in your life, kids running around that listen to every word that comes out of your mouth. Maybe you manage others and your choices impact them in very direct ways, both professionally and personally. Or maybe you occupy significant offices in business or institutions or in social movements where you have power. And I think sometimes these things can feel like a bit of a weight. Where sometimes we wonder how we're supposed to relate the authority that we carry with our spiritual lives, especially when Jesus, who we want to place at the center and uses our lens for how to live in the world, when he's described like he is by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, how he made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and he humbled himself being obedient to death. And it's these kinds of images that might make us think that Joseph is a model for us when he is down and out, not when he's at the top like he is today. But to come to that conclusion would be to exclude so much of what we do and how many of you live every day, to exclude those things as disconnected from the right kind of power. See, Joseph isn't a model for virtue or integrity just because or when he's powerless, but because he uses actual authority to sacrifice and to protect and to contend for others in his influence. And perhaps in that, 
You can see the places that you use power in divine ways like those we see most clearly in Jesus. When you choose to extend mercy, when your kids make mistakes or others offend you, or when you use resources that you have to share and provide for others when they don't have enough or they have no means, or when you empty your strength of its power to wound by choosing to serve and help and contend for everyone around you. So, Joseph's made it. And we see him receive this office and he marries into the aristocracy, great for him. And the text tells us that Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. That during the seven years of abundance, he collected all the food produced, he stored it up in these huge quantities of grain like sand of the sea. And once the years of famine began, Pharaoh sent the people of Egypt to Joseph for help. But we also learn this. We learn that before the famine starts, Joseph and his wife, they had two sons. And there's this interesting notation made that Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And this is an interesting little note in the wide sweeping story of the Hebrew people here because as all of Jacob's sons will see their names taken as one of the 12 tribes of Israel, we note that there is no tribe of Joseph, but that both of his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, both became part of the heritage of God's mercy. Hinting at how Joseph's difficulty and suffering point us to the ways that our stories can actually be reclaimed in startling ways. But there's something more curious going on here. Because he names his first son Manasseh as a play on the Hebrew term Nashani, which is often translated forget. And here Joseph's clearly referring to his father and his brothers, his family, his coat, that painful memory of being sold as a slave. And we'll see next week that, in fact, Joseph has not forgotten these things. He's still very much carrying these memories as part of his story. Which means that we might pay attention to that there's a rabbinic tradition that acknowledges that this term nishani can also carry the sense of to loosen or to weaken, which we're going to come back to in a second. Because the second son's name is interesting too. Joseph calls him Ephraim, which is a play on the Hebrew term Hifrani, which means fruitful. And this word is super common at the beginning of the Hebrew Bible. It often refers to people's ability to have children and ultimately to pass on life from generation to generation. And what's interesting is how Joseph acknowledges God's presence in his fruitfulness, but how it came to him in his suffering. He doesn't turn away from that. And neither does the ancient author who reminds us just a few verses before that Joseph, Joseph's been in Egypt for 13 years, which is maybe where this story finds some of us. Whereas you listen to us talk about Joseph, you can picture your own pain or difficulty that you've lived through and you identify with how drawn out these seasons can feel. But now as we start to see Joseph's story turn and things are, appear to be resolving, he is moving on. 
with his life. Maybe you struggle to relate to that because you're still haunted by mistakes that you've made or by things that others have said or done. Experiences that leave you feeling stuck in some part of your past. And I love how this story of Joseph naming his sons holds these things for us. Because even though he claims that God has helped him to forget his family pain, we know that he hasn't. The emotions of that are actually going to break through onto the page in our story next week as we finish this series. Which means instead that maybe as one tradition holds in the rabbinic records, that instead of forgetting, Joseph is referring instead to how God has helped to weaken or loosen the power of those memories. A process that seems to be happening as he sees the good and the light and the fruit that have come to him in the middle of all the pain that he's experienced in Egypt. Which perhaps might spark hope for some of us in some small way today. Where you don't need to feel pressure to forget all that you've been through in order to move on. To deny parts of your story and run from the ways that they've shaped you. But instead, you might imagine the gentle work of God in weakening those things and loosening your grip on them, which is only possible if, like Joseph, you begin to look for and pick up and wake up to the sources of life that are present to you. Maybe relationships that surround you and comfort you and protect you. Courage that grows in places of your heart that you didn't know were there. Opportunities that come to you unearned and unexpected. All these things have a way of helping us to realize that moving on doesn't mean that you have to start all over with a blank slate. But instead, beginning to see the ways that God always works to redeem our sorrow. Loosening its power in us and bringing to life things that we could never, ever have imagined. Let's pray now. Gracious God, the text, it comes to us, and as always, there are ways in which it brings comfort, and then there are also ways in which it disrupts us. And all these things we, we want to accept with willingness and openness, Trusting that your kindness is at the center of how that happens. And so we ask, would you help us to step out into the open spaces that come to us, living resolutely in new ways and with new imagination for all that you have in this great life. We pray too that you'd help us to see our wisdom and our skills as also coming and tracing from your great creative goodness in us, acknowledging that, living that. I pray too that you'd help us to see your work in us and the ways that you bring power and authority to us. See those things as gift, but then also to place relationship at the center of how we choose to wield it. Giving us grace to see the flourishing that comes to us in those spaces, in those offices, but then also in the difficulty and how moving on doesn't mean that we have to forget and reinvent and start all over, but learning to trust 
that your spirit's gentle way is one of loosening the ways that we hold on to these things. We ask that you'd give us grace and imagination to do this today and in the moments to come. We pray now in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.